Thank you, and, David and Leah. Wow. Oh, I love that song. I know. That is so, it's just so good because partly I love it because I've walked with the Lord for a handful of decades and when I'm going through a hard time, I can look back on all the times he was faithful and he yeah. came through. Mm-hmm. And it, has, it was so hard. It seemed so dark in the moment, but every time he was faithful. And I just feel like our kids benefit from hearing our stories like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so they get to see it and feel it, right? Yeah. Well, good morning. Hope you uh, have uh, kind of gotten over the nine or ten cookies you had last night. Those were amazing. Yeah, I love the Ziploc bags. Yes. Did you guys all get that? We're taking a bunch back to Oregon. That's yeah, all we can say. They were so good. And love the whole idea of the, da- uh, the uh, dancing option. Jan and I started doing some dancing at our uh, church, our former church, uh, some ballroom classes. Yeah. And we're looking forward to hanging out with you guys. And we're really bad. And we're really we bad. We just laugh. But, we laugh at how much we mess up all yeah. the time. But I get a, an excuse to hold my wife a little closer. I'll take that. Yeah, that's kind of nice. <laughs> and I love the explanation on the set. You know, this is a cool thing. I think what we need to do for our purposes, though, for the marriage retreat, is we'll call this the love boat, baby. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, baby. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Let's so we'll take a, it back. That's, we'll take back the <laughs> ship, Roy. So forget the marooned at the top unless you want to be marooned, if you know what I mean, baby. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Check out other parts of nature, if you know what I mean. So, but, hey, we want to continue on with the thing. Hey, fill yeah. in the blanks. You can say whatever that means. But we want to keep talking about the idea of being better together and thinking about marriage as a team. Uh, I don't know if you remember, it was almost two years ago when this uh, condominium in Florida collapsed. Do you remember seeing that on the news? That was a really tragic and amazing thing, and here's some images of it. If you see in the top left corner, this is what it was originally, and in the bottom left corner, this is the amount that collapsed. And it went down about 1.22 in the morning. It was the mm. Champlain Towers South. It's a 12-story beachfront condo just outside of Miami and Surfside, Florida. And when this was happening, one of the residents that lived on the side that didn't collapse thought it was just this massive storm. So he was like, what is this all about? He opens the door, and as he opens the door, he sees a pile of rubble and a bunch of dust. And he and his wife try to get out of the building. They can't because all the debris has blocked the door at the bottom. And what was amazing and sad about this is the building collapsed in 12 seconds. Of the 136 units that were in this condo, over half of them were lost. 98 people were killed. They were all being, the bodies were being able to recovered, recovered, but 98 people died. Mm-hmm. And this is what the analysis was at the end. It says, a contributing factor under investigation is long-term degradation of reinforced concrete, structural support in the basement level parking garage under the pool deck due to water penetration and corrosion of the reinforcing steel. The problems had been reported in 2018 and noted as, quote, much worse in April 2021, which is about two months before the collapse. Well, a $15 million program of remedial works had been approved before the collapse, but the main structural work had not started. They never got to it. And what's interesting is that when you take time and you take concrete that has cracks in it, that has reinforcement bar in it, and you add time and water and salt, what do you get? You get corrosion. And little by little, over time, the weight of this building no longer could be supported by the foundation. And the thing that we want to talk about this morning is we want to talk about how do we protect the unity that God wants us to have? And there are three really strong corrosive elements that we live in that influence us. 
So what we want to do is think about what are those corroding influences and how do we become aware of those things to fight against those things? And the big thing is the three things that the Bible tells us. It's the flesh, it's the world, and it's the devil. And that's where we want to talk. We want to think about how is it that we can protect ourselves from these three things. So let's take a look at that. First one is just the idea of the flesh, protecting our marriage against the flesh. We want to show you a video clip here taken from the resource called The Art of Marriage. And what it is, it's a kind of a fictional account, you know, a story of a couple coming to see a counselor. And the couple is kind of talked about their problems a little bit. Now the counselor wants to say, hey, this is what we should do. This is how I see the solution to your problem. So let's watch this. You know, what's interesting about that clip is just he tries to really pin it down. is that we both bring junk into our marriage that makes it harder for us to keep the unity that God called us to. We talked about last night, as he mentioned, this idea that we're called to something bigger. What makes it so hard? Well, what makes it so hard is that there's also another part of our DNA that's active. And the thing is, there's a part of our nature called the flesh that the Bible talks about. And what's interesting is we go to Romans chapter 1. Paul is trying to describe what this is. What's the principle behind, quote unquote, our flesh? The Bible tells us that all of us are born as sinful human beings. There's a problem that we have. And what does this problem look like? It's right here in this verse. He says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. And it's interesting that Paul uses his phrase, they worshiped and served, because that exact phrase was used about a dozen times in the Old Testament to describe the Israelites' behavior about pursuing a different God. They would worship and serve some different God, and that was the core of their problem. Well, what is it that we worship and serve? Paul's saying we worship and serve the creature, not the creator. And primarily, you know who we worship and serve? Us. It's all about us. It's about us getting our way. It's us demanding our rights. It's about making sure I come out first, I come out on top, that my perspectives win. It's all about us. So the problem that we have about our flesh is there's something in us, this sinful nature, this flesh that says it's about you, and it should be about you. That comes out in arrogance. I know it does for me, where I want Janet to serve me. You know, it's amazing if you could look behind the veil of our little presentations, how much I'm like, no, honey, let's not do it that way. This is the outline. These are the slides. And I've just got this sense that we have to do it my way. And I've got to learn extra hard to say, hey, God's given her a mind. God's given her a voice. How do we do this together? But I usually start these things in how this is how we're going to do it. This is what the outline is going to be. Why? Because I need Janet to serve my frail ego to make me feel better. Or there's times where my love is actually more kind of codependent. You know, I grew up in a home with an alcoholic dad, and my goal was to make sure that everybody likes me. So I'm out serving and I'm worshiping other people. Why? To get their approval. That if I would just treat them a certain way or even worship them in a certain way, they're going to like me better. So there's a twistedness about myself that I bring into marriage that makes it really difficult. It's our flesh. It's interesting how Tim Keller who, if you didn't know, went home to be with the Lord yesterday at the age of 72, which would have been just an amazing home going for him. And, uh, but in his book on the meaning of marriage, he said the radical self-centeredness of the sinful human heart is the ever-present enemy of every marriage. And 
Every single one of us deals with us. None of us are immune from it. I'm curious, how many of you have the chicken pox? Raise mm. your hands. Do you know that you were given a souvenir with that, that virus? It's called shingles. Every single one of us carries shingles in our body if we had chicken pox. I got chicken pox when I was 30, and poor Ben was taking care of me, <laughs> taking care of every little dot, but it was awful. But when Adam and Eve chose to eat from the fruit in the middle of the garden, they, they took on sin. They mm. sinned, and everybody after that has the same virus mm. of sin. And, the, and it is about doing it my way. I want things done my way. Scripture points it out in Isaiah. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We put ourselves first and we think of ourselves first, mm -hmm. right? And foremost, like, okay, a selfie. Who's the first person you look at in a selfie? It's just you. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yourself. Like, I'm like looking through them. Okay, we're deleting this one. We're deleting this one. We're not going to use this one because I don't look good in it. I'm curious, how many of you taught your little kids to go hit their sibling when they had something they wanted? Right? Like, how many of you like were like modeled that to them? Like, they're born with it from day one. We're all about ourselves. And I think about you know, this whole idea of how the flesh affects us. It's like this coin called pride. Hmm. On one side, it's a, it's the, the, one side is our blind spots. We're like, I can't be wrong. Hmm. I'm not wrong in this scenario. Ben um, has, at times, has said like, okay, honey, will you like close the drawers after you've been in the kitchen or close the cabinet doors? And I'm like, I close them. What are you talking about? Until one day I was sitting in our family room and I look back at our kitchen and there's like three doors open, drawers pulled out. I'm like, oh. <laughs> like I'm hitting my head, grabbing yeah. my hip. I'm like, what is this? It's like landmines. Yeah, yeah. The, I do it. But I'm like, no, it can't be. I can't be wrong. And the other side of the coin is they can't be right. There's no way he can be right. There's been, one of the other struggles Ben and I have and differences is the whole idea of using Siri for GPS. Like, I love it. I love that we have that opportunity. Ben's like, it's just another voice in the car that he doesn't listen to. She's always, yeah. she's wrong, she's I'm been like, wrong. <laughs> Come on, I live here, me, Siri, you're a satellite. Come on. Drives me crazy. But I've got to admit, there are times when Siri's wrong and he's right. We should we went the right way. We went we because he went he knew the right way to go. We went his way. So it's like it's the same coin. We all have this idea of like it's not about us. It's about them, or it's all about us and serve us. Yeah, you know it's interesting about that. I, I, look, all of us do this. Mm -hmm. I and mean, how, how is your flesh showing up in your marriage? How is your marriage, how are you trying to recreate your spouse into your own image mm. and your own likeness and the way you see the world and the way you do the world? We all do this. And the thing about it is if we don't understand this and we don't say, God, help me in this, we're going to be drifting further and further apart. We're going to have more and more resentment of our spouse. Why? Because they don't submit to our way. 
This is something we have to be aware of, not to be afraid of, but to be mindful of that there's something about our human heart that demands to get our way. And when we demand that from our spouse, when we expect our spouse to meet every need and do it every way we want, we're going to create real hardship for our marriage. And that's going to destroy our unity, and it's going to eventually really hurt our marriage and maybe even end it. You know, what's interesting is that when Timothy and Paul, you know their relationship, Paul was working with Timothy as a church leader, and he's trying to help him understand how to do ministry, how to be a light and witness for Christ, and how to help people grow in Christ. In 1 Timothy 4, 16, he said to him, pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So one of the things we've got to do to protect our unity is we've got to pay close attention to ourselves. We've got to hear from God's Holy Spirit when we're not doing the right thing, when we're making it all about ourselves. Because if we don't, this enemy is going to continue to corrode our marriage. There's a second thing that we need to be aware of as it relates to just our uh, relationship with uh, our marriage and our unity. Not just the flesh, but the world. The world. This is interesting, that admonition that John gives us in 1 John chapter uh, 2. He said, do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And a way to think about the world really is the prevailing values of society that are against God. The views of God, the views of morality, the views of human nature, the views of human value, human flourishing. Our society has a message about what life is all about. And when we allow ourselves to be too overly influenced by our culture, we're going to make our marriage shaped in its eyes, not in God's eyes. And so again, we have to become aware of what it is that we're living in so we can protect our marriage from the world that we're living in. Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting is just think about the concept that we are all marinating in the world. Absolutely. That's where we're living. Yeah, there's a dish that I make. It's chicken shawarma. It's awesome. And you use chicken breasts. And, you know, if you don't flavor chicken breasts, they taste like cardboard, right? Like there's so (laughs) many times I'm like, when the kids were little, I was running out of time, quickly made some chicken breasts. They're like, Mom, we're eating cardboard. This doesn't taste good. (laughs) But if you marinate it, right, in good seasonings, and then this chicken shawarma seasonings, you use cinnamon and turmeric and lemon juice, it's, it's really tasty. It takes on this amazing flavor. Well, we are marinating in our culture, Mm -hmm. whether we know it or not. We are taking in our culture's values, and they are becoming, they're affecting us, and we don't even realize it. We're passive about it. And there's five ways that the culture is trying to influence us. First of all, culture has a different view of marriage. Mm. has a totally different view of marriage. Matter of fact, one of the views today is it's not necessary. You don't need to get married. It's just a piece of paper. Don't do that at all. Matter of fact, there are fewer people getting married today than people who are uh, actually more people living together than more people who are getting married each year. The number of marriages continues to decline in American culture because people don't believe in this institution called marriage. The culture says it's unnecessary. Or the other thing the culture says, it's a contract. And just like you'd make a contract with anybody else, you have things that you want and need and desire, and if you don't get them, you have a right to get out of this thing. You have a right to be demanding. And that's the view that our culture presents to us in marriage. If you're not getting what you want, if you're not being serviced the way you want to be serviced, then you have reason to get out of this marriage. 
Now, obviously, there's things that we need to talk about regarding conflicts, but the culture is basically saying it's not permanent. It doesn't have to be permanent. And that's what the scriptures tell us it is permanent. Secondly, culture has a different view of love. Isn't that amazing? When you just stop and listen to songs and when you watch movies mm -hmm. and rom-coms and everything, the major theme in our culture of love is love is a feeling, isn't it? It's how someone makes you feel. It's, it's your feelings towards them, but it's also you make me feel a certain way. And as long as you keep making me feel a certain way, I'll stay in this. But when you stop making me feel a certain way, or when I stop feeling a certain way towards you, then that means we're done. See, we don't promise till death do us part. We promise until love fades. Mm -hmm. And that culture says that's what love is all about. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about that is that it makes it um, just about our feelings. And the scripture says what? That love is an action. How do you think Jesus felt about going to the cross? Do you think he's like, oh, man, this will be awesome. Can't wait to die a gr gr gruesome death. <laughs> no, it was out of obedience to the Father. And he calls us to live a life that is giving. It's not primarily about our feelings. Now, they can come and go. But our culture says, no, it's primarily about feelings. Well, and what culture does with that, with movies and songs and TV shows, is it sets our expectations up here. Mm -hmm. this, is what, this is what normal is, right? But we live here. And the difference between here and here is a heck of a lot of disappointment. And we're constantly like, it's not measuring up. It's not like The Bachelor. It's not, <laughs> you know, it's not. And we, we are kids... We're, we're of the age to watch the, the Bachelor. And we told him, like, okay, we'll watch it. We'll watch it with you, but this is what you have to agree to. We're going to play a game called Spot the Lie. Hmm. We're going we're gonna to watch this and we're going to call out what the mess, underlying message here is, which is that it's all about me finding my soulmate. And that's so, we watched it. We had a lot of discussions. They yeah. didn't watch it for long. It's funny, we, yeah, yeah, they, they don't want to, want to watch with mom and dad too long after you do that. <laughs> but that's the message that love is this feeling yeah. and you can find it in 20 people in six weeks or something. Yeah. You know, there's a third message about the culture gives us about marriage. The culture is a different view of sex. Mm -hmm. Culture says it's not, sex is not just between a husband and wife in marriage. It's whatever you want it to be. And you know that. You see the messages. You hear the messages. It's in most shows that involve a marriage or a, a dating relationship. We were trying to influence our kids to help them understand that, you know, in our culture, the message is that sex is a normal part of dating. Mm -hmm. That's just a normal part of dating. And we say, you don't know, no, it's not. God has a different view of sex. And culture's putting that message on us constantly. You know, and it affects the way we enjoy each other sexually in our marriage. You know, I'll, I'll admit, when I was a middle school kid, uh, my brother found a box of Playboy magazines on a paper route. And that started a long journey of just a struggle with pornography. And it's amazing how the presentation, just the idea of what sex is all about, it's only about pleasure. It's not about serving. It's mostly about the man. It's just this really warped view of what sex is. And by God's grace, he's brought lots and lots of healing in my life. But our culture gives this picture of what sex is about that is nothing like what the scriptures teach us. The other thing that culture tells us is culture is that sex is like the thermostat in your home. So if you're cold, you, you go to the thermostat and you change it, right? You, you change the temperature. Well, that's what culture tells us about our marriage. If we're not doing well, just up the sex. Make it more creative. Yeah. Make it more frequent. 
But scripture tells us that sex is a lot more like a thermometer. What you're experiencing in your bedroom as far as the intimacy is just a picture of what's going Mm. on outside of the bedroom. Mm. It just takes the temperature of how your relationship is doing in general. Uh, There's a fourth view that culture gives us, and that's a different view of our spouses. In other words, what role do they play in our lives? And the idea is that our spouse must fulfill us. They must come through for us. Janet mentioned the term soulmate. They've got to be that person that kind of takes us out of the doldrums of life. And if they don't make our lives work, then we have reason to think we might marry the wrong person. Matter of fact, there's a cartoon in the New York Magazine that kind of uh, em- empathized or em- emphasized that. Yeah, I love it. It says, Sally, will you make me the happiest man in the world and accept full responsibility if I should fail to be the happiest man in the world? <laughs> I think we all really kind of went into marriage thinking that is what the other, our spouse was going to do for us. And it was going to be their fault if we didn't achieve that. This is a quote from Tim Keller, and he kind of emphasizes that as well. He says, both men and women today want an ideal person. Never before in history has there been a society filled with people so idealistic in what they are seeking in a spouse. In generations past, there was far less talk about compatibility and the illusion that if we find our one true soulmate, everything wrong with us will be healed. You see, this kind of mindset that our culture gives us puts a huge demand on our spouses to be the kind of people they were never designed to be. We want them almost to become like God to meet every need, and they can't be because they're not God. Well, there's a fifth view that the culture has about the idea of um, uh, just the self. How does the the culture that we live in promote the self. And the thing is, it really is all about promoting the self. And I, I have this to prove for it. Has there, anyone ever been to one of these places? <laughs> yeah? You know there's over 17,000 choices you can make about how you get your beverage? Over 17,000. Why? Because they want to make sure that they meet your every taste desire, your every combination. You know, I remember the first time I moved up to the Northwest, I came from Arizona. Nobody drinks hot coffee in Arizona, okay? At least they didn't. The last thing you want is a cup of hot coffee when it's 117 degrees outside. You know, what you want is the 64-ounce thirst buster. You know, that's what I'd get. You go with like a little dolly, pick up your drink with a big straw, and just move it out. But it was interesting because Starbucks actually put out a little piece to help you know how to order your beverage, to put it in the right order so the barista can receive it well, so you can give your order with confidence. Because it's all about customer service. And we live in a culture that's primarily customer service. We're less and less manufacturing. We're more about making the customer happy. If you don't like something, what do you do? You take it back. And when you take it back, what do they do? They give you your money back. They give you a discount. They give you a bonus. Why? Because they want to make you happy. That's American culture. And we live in that and we marinate in that and we bring that attitude home. Mm -hmm. You're here to serve me. And that's the thing. The culture has this idea that you are the most important person, and it just amplifies what our fallen hearts already say. Sociologists say there's a term now um, called expressive individualism that talks about where Americans are, that I have the right to express myself any way I want, and you should have no opinion about it. You should have no problem about it. Matter of fact, I am so important, my desires, my thoughts, my feelings override my biology. That's how powerful I am. And that's the culture that we marinate in and bring it in here. So the thing is, the most important thing we've got to remember about this this threat of the culture is it tells us we're the most important person and we deserve to get 
whatever we want. It's interesting how Paul uh, was instructing, got it upside down. One of the things he said that we need to be doing in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he said, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So part of our task is to be diligent as we hear these messages to spot the lie. So we're influenced by our flesh. We're influenced by the world. Lastly, the third influence we have is from the devil. There we go. Um, C.S. Lewis kind of reminded us that uh, when we think about the devil, like even in this audience, I might, there might be some people like, well, devil, mm, what are you talking about? I went to Arizona State. We were the sun devils. So I, would, uh, I was involved with this group that did kind of PR and marketing for the campus. So I had this shirt that said devil's advocate, but I was a leader in campus crusade for Christ. So it was a little bit of a, uh, you know, how does that work? You know, they see me, my devil's advocate, you know, I'd always take that shirt off when I was trying to lead a Bible study or something. <laughs> But the point is, we can kind of have a sloppy view of who the devil is. And C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letter, said this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And the thing is, Satan is real. The Bible presents him as a real person, presents him as a person who really wants to destroy what God has brought about. Matter of fact, I'm just going to go through this list of what the Bible tells us about Satan. First of all, he's our adversary. An adversary is somebody who's opposed. He's opposed to what God wants to do. God wants you and uh, your marriage and our marriage to reflect him like we talked about last night. Satan wants to do everything to destroy that. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober of spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking some to devour. He wants to destroy your marriage. The Bible tells us that he's deceptive. In Genesis 3, 1, it says, The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field what the Lord God has made. And he starts introducing to Eve at the very beginning, God didn't say that. God doesn't mean that. You don't have to do that. He's deceptive. Scriptures tell us, too, that he's a liar. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. He says, you are of the father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whatever he speaks is a lie. He speaks from his own nature, for he is the liar and the father of lies. And all he wants to do is float lies to you about yourself about your spouse, about God, about marriage. He's also an accuser of the brethren. He stands day and night accusing us before God. And lastly, the Bible says he's a saboteur, which I love that French word, saboteur. And the idea of sabotage is really deliberately out to destroy or damage something. That's what he's about. Jesus said the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. And he's coming for our marriages. Yeah. Well, and, and he, he is lying to us hmm. all the time. I only wish that he had a voice like Jack Nicholson. That you know? would be pretty fancy. Yeah. It would you be know? so helpful if hey. that's the voice I yeah. heard. Keep going. Well, yes. you know, it's like he said that probably, you know, I, I kind of picture him in the, in the garden with Adam and he was like, so Eve, feeling a little hungry today, are you? Have you noticed the tree right in the middle? 
You know, it's just he's, but he doesn't talk no, like that. No, he talks just like us. Mm. It's like our very, very own voice. Mm. So if you've ever thought something like, they will never change. If they just changed, everything would be better. Then, then you have heard Satan. Have you ever thought, you know, I failed in my first marriage. Why, why would this one be any different? Or I'm alone in all of this. I have messed things up so badly, there's no hope. Then you've heard Satan's voice. Or if you've ever thought God really doesn't care about us because things wouldn't be so hard for so long, then you've heard Satan's voice. I think we can all say we've heard Satan's voice. He is loud and active. And one of the things that Ben and I have figured out is that when we're not talking to each other, we're doing the whole silent treatment thing, Satan's talking loud and clear to us. To both of us. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, he, is, he is so much more prevalent than I think that he is. In James 4, 7, it says that we need to submit, therefore, to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. All it takes is to say, God, help me. I am embracing a lie right now. You know, there's a verse in, um, where is that verse? It is Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Touch your spouse right now. Just touch their arm. Flesh and blood, yes? Total flesh and blood. God says our battle is not against Hmm. flesh and blood. Satan is our enemy. Our spouse is not our enemy. Now, some of you might be thinking, Ben, you don't understand. My spouse is Satan. No, 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 no. They're not. No, no. Flesh and blood. Yeah, so why, why don't you turn to your spouse and just say to them, you're not my enemy. Yeah, the thing that's so powerful about this is that all of this, he wants us to be mad at each other yeah. and fight each other. And when he does that, when he sees us just tearing each other apart or moving away in isolation and so on, he just smiles because mm-hmm. he's destroying us. Mm-hmm. Well, just kind of a contrast to uh, what we've been talking about last night and tonight. Yeah, we, we, we've been talking about the difference between um, what the world says as far as a contract relationship being about us versus a covenant relationship. So we have it on the chart here just to highlight the differences. A contract relationship is an ongoing choice to believe love is a feeling, while a covenant relationship is an ongoing choice to believe love is an action. In a contract, we be, we, we're loyal up to a point. But in a covenant relationship, we are loyal up till death. In a contract relationship, you put yourself first. But in a covenant relationship, you put your spouse first. In a contract relationship, we follow culture's view of marriage. But in a covenant relationship, we follow God's view of marriage. And lastly, In a contract type of relationship, we listen to the lies of Satan. But in a covenant relationship, we confront Satan's lies. Our culture teaches us that marriage is primarily about our spouse meeting our needs. But God teaches us that marriage is about us meeting our spouse's needs. 
totally different. Several years ago, I got a phone call from a friend of mine, Joe, and he wanted to get together. And uh, Joe and I have been getting together for a long time. We would get together and talk about our walks with the Lord, hold each other accountable in different areas of our lives. Our families did a lot of things together, mm -hmm. camped together. We'd go and hang out at their house. They lived on a golf course and just had a great growing relationship with his family. We shared some similar passions about discipleship and a particular teacher, a guy by the name of Howard Hendricks, who taught at Dallas Seminary. They had gone to a number of family life events. We speak at these family life marriage conferences. So we had so much in common. And he called one day to tell me, he says, I got to tell you something. I had an affair. And I'm still kind of in the middle of it. And I want to stay with her and not with my wife. And it just kicked me in the gut. And the problem about it was that we've been talking about all these things. And he's had problems in his past. And we've talked about our problems. We've talked about our temptations sexually. But he kept ignoring things. He kept putting things under the rug. He kept making his wife all bad. He kept making this, this gal all good. He bought the lie from the culture that he deserved better, that he needed to be served. And my wife's not serving me anymore, but she is. And I talked with him and I pleaded with him that, Joe, this is going to destroy you. It's going to destroy your marriage, but it's also going to hurt your kids. Mm -hmm. For the rest of your life, you're going to have this challenge with your children. Two of his daughters don't even talk to him. And he's trying to build bridges. And he's asking me to help build bridges. And I'm like, dude, this is above my pay grade. <laughs> you know, you're going to have to get in some long-term counseling to figure out how you repair this damage. And the thing is, Joe was getting warnings all along the way, just like the people that were in this building. They inspected and said, there's problems here. There's cracks here. And if you don't pay attention to these things, they're going to hurt you. Now, this is a heavy message this morning. We get this. But the reason it's heavy is because you have something extremely valuable. God's designed marriage to be this beautiful thing that reflects his unity, that meets our needs in a beautiful way. And there are three very powerful influences that, that want to destroy you. They don't want to just make it hard. They want mm -hmm. to take you out. And it's kind of when our kids were traveling, especially our daughter, you know, and I'm still a little bit worried. I, I got texting from her last night that she's on the move. I'm like, where are you going? <laughs> the thing that I try to say to her is like, honey, I don't want you to be fearful, but I want you to be mindful. Sober-minded. And that's yeah. the idea with this, this talk this morning. Don't be afraid. You have the spirit of God. You have the community of God. You have the mm -hmm. word of God. But be mindful of how you live in your flesh, how it influences you, the world, and the devil. So I just, we just want to encourage you, as you're spending time with the Lord today and with each other, just be open. Lord, is one of these areas am I most susceptible to? Where do I need to pay more attention? Where do I need to become more mindful and get your help? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you very much for this morning. I know it's just sobering, but Lord, somebody's really after us. They really want to hurt our marriages, and we need to protect our marriages. We're so grateful that um, your word has explained to us clearly who our enemies are, that you've given us admonition on how to watch ourselves and how to not be conformed by the world, how to resist the devil. We pray that you would help us to leave this place with a better strategy to do all of those things. In Jesus' name we pray.